Hello, and welcome to NICU Boot Camp. This is Dr. Kirsty Martin, second-year neonatology fellow at the University of Massachusetts in Worcester, Massachusetts. NICU Boot Camp is a high-yield curriculum for residents and medical students who will be rotating through the NICU at UMass. This series is meant to help you feel more comfortable and confident during your upcoming rotation. These podcasts have been adapted from the open access lectures published with the paper Neonatal Intensive Care Unit Boot Camp, a preparatory curriculum for residents by Dr. Jeffrey Surkoff and colleagues at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. The originally published curriculum can be found online at MedEd Portal, the Journal of Teaching and Learning Resources of the Association of American Medical Colleges. The objectives of this episode of NICU Bootcamp are to recognize common problems and emergencies encountered in the NICU and understand their management, to interpret and manage basic lab, blood gas, and x-ray findings commonly encountered in the NICU, and to demonstrate basic respiratory support and management in NICU patient scenarios. This is a case-based episode, and I will allow for some time to think about the answers to the questions asked. Case number one. The nurse calls you with concerns for results from our routine chemistry. The glucose is 412. What would you do in this situation? What would be some questions you should ask the nurse? You should ask the nurse how labs were obtained. Were the labs obtained via a heel stick or were they obtained through a central line containing dextrose? Is the infant otherwise stable or are there any other changes in vital signs or activity? Were the fluids changed recently? How is the infant receiving dextrose, TPN, or IV fluid, or enteral feeds? Are there any new medications being administered, such as steroids? The nurse answers your question about the manner in which the labs were obtained. The labs were obtained through the UVC, which has TPN and therefore dextrose running through the other lumen of that line. The most likely cause of the elevated glucose is that the TPN was not stopped while the labs were drawn from the other lumen or that not enough blood was pulled back off of the line prior to sending the labs. A point-of-care glucose via heel stick should be obtained to confirm the true glucose level. This is done and the result is 94. There is nothing further to do. This time, we get a different answer from the nurse. The labs were obtained via a heel stick and she hasn't noticed that the infant has been acting any differently. This could be a sign of an iatrogenic cause of hyperglycemia, such as increased dextrose concentration of administered fluids or administration of medications known to cause hyperglycemia, such as steroids. However, such a significant elevation should not be taken lightly and more serious causes such as infection may need to be investigated, especially in the setting of such an abnormal value. Sepsis is a common cause of hyperglycemia in infants. The baby should be examined, and you should consult with the fellow, nurse practitioner, or attending about whether a CBC and blood culture should be drawn. In this case, a CBC and blood culture are drawn. Results show a white blood cell count of 28 with 20 bands, 22 segmented neutrophils, 35 lymphocytes, 4 metamyelocytes, and platelets of 156. Due to the significant left shift with the I to T ratio of 0.52, there is significant concern for infection. Broad spectrum antibiotics are started after the blood culture is obtained. Sepsis is always a concern in the NICU. 
premature infants are at high risk of infection due to their prematurity and the presence of indwelling central lines. Overall illness also increases their susceptibility to infection. If there is any new onset abnormal glucose tolerance with or without abnormal behavior, sepsis should always be ruled out. Abnormal behavior could be high or low heart rate, high or low respiratory rate, high or low temperature, poor feeding, feeding intolerance, or decreased activity. There is a low threshold to obtain blood cultures and evaluate for infection. If sepsis is considered, a peripheral blood culture should be obtained. If the patient has a central line, two peripheral blood cultures should be obtained. Do not draw blood cultures off of a central line. Urine cultures should be obtained if the patient is over one week of age and infection is highly suspected. Urine cultures should always be obtained via a catheterized specimen. A viral panel can also be considered in a patient who is exhibiting symptoms of respiratory viral infection such as increased secretions or cough. Please notify the rest of your team if any cultures come back as positive, even if the infant is already on antibiotics. Antibiotics may be altered based on preliminary gram stain or culture results. Antibiotics of choice are usually broad spectrum, covering both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. In general, we initially give ampicillin and gentamicin, or ampicillin and a third-generation cephalosporin such as cefotaxime or ceftazidime. If the patient has a central line, vancomycin is substituted for ampicillin to cover the risk of infection with MRSA. You should discuss antibiotic choices with your team. Case number two. A nurse calls you for a critical value of a glucose of 37 on a routine electrolyte panel. How should you respond? Ask how long ago the specimen was obtained, as the glucose level may be falsely low in a specimen that has sat in the lab for a while prior to being analyzed. Ask about the activity of the infant, as hypoglycemia can be concerning for infection. The nurse responds that the infant is acting fine and this was from the morning lab sent two hours ago. You ask her to obtain a point-of-care glucose, which is 76. No further workup is indicated for this patient. Case number three. A nurse calls you with an abnormal blood sugar from a two-hour-old female infant born at 35 weeks gestation and with a birth weight of 4,600 grams. The glucose on the BMP is 20 and the point-of-care glucose confirmation is 25. What would be your next step? What do you think is the cause in this infant? The infant is hypoglycemic and the most likely cause for this macrosomic baby is that she is an infant of a diabetic mother. This infant will need glucose replacement either via oral feedings or intravenous fluids. Let's talk about this in more detail. Macrosomia, or a birth weight greater than 4,000 to 4,500 grams, is often found in infants of diabetic mothers. Elevated glucose levels in the mother cross the placenta so that the babies are used to seeing high glucose in utero. Mother's insulin does not cross the placenta, so the fetus responds with increased insulin production in utero. After birth, the glucose supply is removed, but the insulin produced in utero is still active. 
These infants are at high risk for hypoglycemia due to the increased production of insulin as compared to the low levels of glucose they see after the placenta is removed. These infants may require IV fluids with a high glucose infusion rate, and we should aim to correct the hypoglycemia and increase the GIR. There are two different options to correct the glucose. If the infant is being fed, you can allow the infant to feed and recheck the glucose 30 minutes after feeding. If it remains low or the infant feeds poorly, IV fluid administration will likely be necessary. If the infant is NPO and on IV fluids or is symptomatic from the hypoglycemia, administer a bolus of D10W at 2 milliliters per kilogram and increase the GIR by increasing either the dextrose concentration being given or increase the rate of IV fluids. Repeat the glucose in 30 minutes and continue to adjust fluids as needed to normalize the glucose. Case number four. You are reviewing the morning labs on your patient while preparing your daily note. The results of a BMP are as follows. Sodium 136, potassium 7.6, chloride 113, bicarb 18, BUN 7, creatinine 0.9, glucose 86. Is there anything concerning about these lab values? What would be your next course of action? The potassium level is abnormally elevated to 7.6. The most common cause of an elevated level in the NICU is hemolysis as a result of the lab being obtained via a heel stick. Ask the nurse how the sample was obtained and check on the lab results to see if any hemolysis was noted. The lab was obtained via a heel stick specimen and hemolysis was noted by the lab. A repeat potassium on a free-flowing sample is 4.7. No further workup is indicated. Case number five. Again, you are reviewing the morning labs on your patient while preparing your daily note. The results of a BMP are as follows. Sodium, 130. Potassium, 7.9. Chloride, 100. Bicarb, 19. BUN, 39. Creatinine, 1.6. Glucose, 96. The lab notes that there is no visible hemolysis. Is there anything concerning about these lab values? The potassium is elevated to 7.9. In this case, the sodium is also low at 130, and the BUN and creatinine are elevated to 39 and 1.6 without any hemolysis noted. This heightens the suspicion for kidney dysfunction. Due to the concern for kidney dysfunction, you should ask about the patient's urine output and the amount of potassium that is being administered to the patient in the IV fluids or TPN. For this patient, there has been decreased urine output in the past 12 hours with no urine output in the last four hours. The TPN has four milliequivalents per kilogram per day of potassium chloride. What should you do next? You need to discontinue the potassium-containing IV fluids. You should obtain an electrocardiogram to look for T-wave changes. You should consult with your team to consider medical treatment for hyperkalemia, such as insulin and glucose, albuterol, calcium, Lasix, and bicarbonate administration. 
you should also contemplate why the infant has gone into renal failure. Case number six. The nurse calls you to say that there are five milliliters of undigested feeds in an infant's orogastric tube, which was opened to vent out air from the stomach after a feed. The nurse states that this feed is comprised of a lot of mucus with partially digested milk. The infant is being fed 13 mLs every three hours, stooled earlier in the day, is active and otherwise normal. You should ask the nurse to refeed this amount and continue the feeds as ordered, as the consistency of this vented feed is normal. Case number seven. The nurse calls you about a 20-day-old X27 week infant who now weighs 1,200 grams. The baby has had intermittent feeding intolerance with a distended abdomen and light green vented feeds in the OG tube for several days. The nurse now notices that there is a small amount of blood in the stool. What should you do? This infant has ominous clinical findings concerning for necrotizing enterocolitis or neck. You should hold the infant's feeds and go examine the patient. On exam, the abdomen appears distended with decreased bowel sounds. What would be your next course of action? You should order an abdominal x-ray, CBC, blood culture, and antibiotics in consultation with your team. The abdominal x-ray is obtained and the AP view shows an abnormal bowel gas pattern with diffuse pneumatosis intestinalis. A lateral decubitus view shows free air in the abdomen. Necrotizing enterocolitis or neck is a surgical emergency and can be associated with significant morbidity and mortality. It is an illness of unclear etiology associated with intestinal necrosis that involves inflammation of the bowel wall with invasion of enteric gas-forming organisms and dissection of gas into the muscularis and portal venous system. Neck is associated with prematurity as well as full-term infants with congenital heart disease. Intestinal perforation is a major complication for infants who are acutely ill with neck. Obtaining a left lateral decubitus or cross-table lateral x-ray view is the best way to evaluate for pneumoperitoneum. When perforation occurs, there is spillage of intestinal contents and air into the abdomen, which is a surgical emergency. Case number eight. The nurse calls to tell you that the premature infant who is 32 weeks with a birth weight of 2,200 grams, who was recently admitted with a diagnosis of respiratory distress syndrome and suspected sepsis, has a heart rate of 224 beats per minute for the last five minutes. The morning x-ray of the infant shows the umbilical venous catheter at the level of T7, which is at the top of the cardiac silhouette. What is the cause? This infant has a sustained tachycardia with the most likely cause in this infant to be supraventricular tachycardia or SVT. The infant has an abnormally high placed umbilical venous catheter, which could be the cause. An EKG should be obtained to confirm the SVT if the patient is stable. If the patient is unstable at any point with hypotension or hypoxia, intervention should be taken to break the SVT. If the infant is stable, 
You may obtain an EKG to confirm prior to performing any interventions, including adjusting the line, vagal maneuvers, placing ice on the face, or adenosine administration. Case number nine. You get a call from the respiratory therapist. They report a capillary blood gas to you. Baby T has a blood gas with a pH of 7.24, a PCO2 of 69, a PO2 of 110, a bicarb of 22, and a base deficit of minus 2.1. What should be your response? It is important to know more information. You should ask about current support the infant is receiving, the day of life and corrected gestational age, and how this gas compares to previous blood gases. You find out that this baby is a former 24-week infant who is now 30 weeks corrected and is on the conventional pressure-controlled ventilator. The settings are 22 over 4 with a rate of 45 and an FiO2 of 65%. The infant's last gas had a carbon dioxide level of 65. Now that you have this information, what interventions would you like to make for this infant? This child is likely more of a chronic BPD patient being six weeks old and remaining on mechanical ventilation. We can, therefore, lower our goals to avoid overventilation and potential damage to immature developing lungs. Our goal pH is greater than or equal to 7.25 with a carbon dioxide of less than 65. In this case, it would be reasonable to increase the settings or make no intervention. In order to increase ventilation and decrease CO2 levels, we could increase the PIP or increase the rate. In addition, it is important to note the PO2 on this gas. Oxygen can be toxic, particularly to the fetal eye vasculature. A CBG with a PO2 of 110 implies that we are likely giving too much oxygen. We should wean the FiO2. Let's take another look at that blood gas in a different scenario. The patient is still a former 24-week infant who is 6 weeks old and is on the same ventilator settings. However, the patient's last blood gas had a carbon dioxide level of 36 and the rate had been weaned from 47 to 45. How does this information change your management? There is a large change in the carbon dioxide level that cannot be accounted for by a small wean in the ventilator rate, and there is therefore likely an additional cause for this change. You should examine the patient and then work through the DOPE mnemonic to determine the cause for the change in carbon dioxide. Consider the same scenario, but this time the patient was weaned by 10 on the rate and 2 on the PIP. This was an aggressive ventilator wean, which is likely the cause of the increase in carbon dioxide. You should adjust the ventilator settings by increasing the rate to aid in carbon dioxide removal. Case number 10. The respiratory therapist calls you with an ABG on baby J showing a pH of 7.41, a PCO2 of 37, a PAO2 of 142, a bicarb of 23, and a base excess of 1.1. What is your response? More information needs to be obtained. Depending on several factors, including the gestational age and level of illness, the management will be different. In most situations, this will be a weanable gas. If this patient is a premature infant with improving respiratory distress syndrome who is otherwise stable, you should wean the ventilator by decreasing the rate and or decreasing the PIP. 
If this patient is a full-term infant with severe persistent pulmonary hypertension, you should be much more cautious about weaning the ventilator settings. Weaning the PIP for an infant with PPHN could decrease their mean airway pressure, which could decrease the infant's ability to oxygenate well, which is the primary problem of PPHN. Case number 11. The respiratory therapist calls again with another blood gas. This time, it is an ABG on baby S that shows a pH of 7.23, a PCO2 of 60, a PaO2 of 86, a bicarb of 20, and a base deficit of minus 3. By now, you know that you need more information to put this blood gas in context. This baby was born at 40 weeks and suffered a shoulder dystocia during birth. He is undergoing therapeutic hypothermia for neonatal encephalopathy that we suspect is related to the lack of oxygen during his shoulder dystocia. He is now two days old. His ventilator support is a pressure-controlled ventilator with settings of 20 over 6 with a rate of 40 and an FiO2 of 40%. For this infant, we would like to keep the CO2 in the normal range to prevent acidosis and further constriction of the pulmonary vasculature. Therefore, you would increase the PIP to increase your ventilation. This may also help increase your mean airway pressure, which may improve oxygenation and allow you to wean the FiO2. Consider this infant's case, but instead the infant is on Hi-Fi. The settings are a mean airway pressure of 10, amplitude of 25, hertz of 12, and an FiO2 of 40%. In order to decrease carbon dioxide and increase ventilation, the amplitude should be increased by one or two points. Increasing the mean airway pressure may be beneficial if the patient is underexpanded and or requiring more oxygen. In this episode, we reviewed on-call pearls and common cases that you may encounter in the NICU. Thank you for tuning into the NICU Bootcamp podcast. I hope that this information will be helpful to you as you start your upcoming NICU rotation. We are looking forward to working with you very soon. This podcast was recorded and edited by me, Kirsty Martin. Music by Lobo Loco, Piano Man Sofa Sofa, ID 1157, through Creative Commons license BY-NC-ND. Music can be found at www.musikbrause.de. These podcasts have been adapted from the open access lectures published with the paper Neonatal Intensive Care Unit Bootcamp, a preparatory curriculum for residents by Dr. Jeffrey Surkoff and colleagues at Louisiana State University Health Sciences Center in New Orleans, Louisiana. The originally published curriculum can be found online at MedEd Portal, the Journal of Teaching and Learning Resources of the Association of American Medical Colleges.